0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty.
1: Professor Lampy, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to catch up with you and discuss some of our favorite topics social media, online behavior, and digital citizenship. As you know, my name is Nikki Sundstrom, and I am the Director of Social Media and Public Engagement for the University of Michigan. Will you please take a moment to introduce yourself and share a bit about your area of research and expertise?
0: Sure, my name is Cliff Lampy. I'm a professor in the School of Information here at the University of Michigan. Uh, I've been studying what we now call social media for, oh God, 20, 25 years at this point. I was a young nerd interested in bulletin boards and MUDs way back in the day and managed to turn that into a productive research career. Um, So what I study basically are how mediated communication affects interpersonal relationships, and that's got a lot of aspects to it. So for a long time I looked at what are the benefits of how we interact, what are the good things that we can do, and I still look at that a lot. Uh, But I also study things like online harassment, misinformation and disinformation, uh, what we can do about that, and thinking about how can we make platforms uh, more productive, equitable and safe for everybody uh, all together.
1: Wonderful. Well, you know, thank you again for joining me today. I have a lot of ground that I'm hoping we can cover because it's been a while since we've last caught up. Um, So let's go ahead and, and dig in and get started. As you know, uh, next week on Wednesday, June 30th, the world will recognize Social Media Day for the 11th year. And as someone who has been both researching and actively participating in social media for, as you mentioned, two decades, how have you seen these platforms, your participation in them, and the way that you approach your teaching of them evolve?
0: Yeah, I mean, when I first started out, they were a relatively minor part of the internet landscape. Uh, I started way back in web 1.0 type of days, and it was mostly a read-only uh, internet at that point. Um, I think the biggest thing that's changed since I started is the number of people who have come into social media spaces, right? That's that's the, really the biggest change is We have more mobile devices and better internet connectivity. Uh, pretty much everybody who wants to be connected, at least in the United States, to social media is. And there are always people who opt out and that's great. Uh, But still, if you look at a site like Facebook, you're looking at pretty stably now over the past few years, 75 to 80% of the US internet using population is using a site like Facebook, 30% use Instagram, 25% use Twitter. So it's you know, uh, become part of everyday life. And I think that's the biggest change is how kind of integrated social media has become with the commerce that we engage in with our interpersonal relationships with the way that we meet and maintain relationships. Um, It's really, that's, that's an amazing change in a short amount of time uh, for how we communicate as a species.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I recently had an opportunity to speak um, to some medical students that were preparing to graduate and kind of talking about that evolution between personal and professional usage, right, of online communities. And I, I conveyed to them that we are long past any people on the internet actually being your friends, right, friending people, or even the fact that we so frequently forget those networks that we've built over time. Um, I shared a story with them that the very first person in my graduate degree program that encouraged me to get on Facebook, long before it was my career, and I thought they were they're crazy, I wanted nothing to do with the platforms, go figure, um, he just got married and I saw it on Facebook and I had no idea that we were still connected a, a decade later. Um, so who knows what we're doing in our, our respective worlds at this point.
0: Yeah, when I started, when I was a PhD student, about 6% of the internet using population was involved in online communities, as we called them at the time, or social media. And now it's just a huge percentage of people.
1: So on that note, in your own experience and expertise, what would you say is the biggest potential threat that social media currently poses? And what, if any, immense value do you feel that it still has?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's no surprise to anybody watching this, and it doesn't take a professor to tell you, but probably the biggest worry is the divisiveness that we see in social media, right? The fact that people can form filter bubbles and get news only from sources that confirm their already held beliefs, and it's creating more and more divide amongst Americans about what they believe and what they see as true, right? I mean, it's not even that it's not even that we disagree on things it's that we fundamentally are viewing reality differently and that's that's what really worries me right if we disagree we have ways to work around that like we have processes for dealing with disagreement we don't have a ton of great processes for dealing with separate realities and because the, since the social media are algorithmically fed it's very easy to create a social media environment that only serves basically your personal interests. And if unless you're actively seeking contrary information to what you already believe, you're just not gonna see anything that countervails your personal beliefs. And so it's it's unless we do something drastic soon, I think it's gonna create a disaster for our country basically, which is a, a bad thing. Now, I think uh, most time when I talk to lay audiences, they say, well, is it worth it then? I'm not sure it's, that that's the right question, because it's not like social media is going to go away. Um, you know, the companies are too big and powerful at this point. But I do think that social media still provides a lot of benefits for people. I mean, folks aren't stupid, right? Like, if it weren't providing benefit, we wouldn't be using social media the way we are. Um, and I still see a lot of positives that come out of social media. Um, lots of social support, right? Like, if people are having a bad day, they tend to go to social media to collect a few, like, oh, that's too bad kind of comments from people and, and feel a little bit better. The one unambiguously popular feature of Facebook is uh, Facebook uh, birthday greetings, right? And that still feels like a little nice nudge of a broad network of people who are spending just that little bit of attention on you that day and reminding you that you've, you've lived a life where you've built friendships and relationships, and that that's a positive thing. Um, and help-seeking, seeking seeking recommendations, seeking information. Um, Most of the action, for instance, on Facebook these days is in groups, and you see a ton of really great groups that are around your town and people organizing events in your town. You see groups for things that you believe in. You see buy and sell groups, free giveaway groups, right? Like it's, it's easy to forget how good social media still is, given all the kind of negative things that we see these days. But it still is really good it still is allowing people to communicate effectively, allowing them to organize, engage in collective action. So there's, there's a lot of positives and it's easy to forget that sometimes.
1: I, you just reinvigorated me a little bit there because it is very difficult. I, I'm going to focus a little bit more on the difficult for just a little bit because oh, yeah. it is an emphasis of your research. Um, let's dig a little deeper into the cultural impacts of social media as it relates specifically to harassment, incivility, and misinformation. Yeah. What societal shifts in behavior or engagement do you believe we've seen as a result of wide-scale social media adoption?
0: Well, I think you know, it's what people have come to call cancel culture is one big change, right, um, and it's, we we call it kind of, um, you know, massive scale retributive attributive harassment, right, like, people see a wrong, or a perceived wrong, and on social media, they don't want people to get away with it, it's almost like a moral argument that you're making, you see somebody who holds a belief that you find untenable, or somebody who does something that you think is wrong, And typically there's no criminal consequence for that people. The platforms certainly aren't doing anything about those people. And so the only option people feel like they have is to individually call out that person and try to get them to face some type of consequence, right? And when you have one person doing that, that can be annoying and hurtful. When you have a thousand people doing that, it can be devastating, right? And so I think people feel frustrated and powerless. And so when they feel that way, they turn to social media to try to call out, cancel, whatever you want to call it, folks, um, because that feels like the only pathway to justice that they have, right? And it it feels momentarily great to call out somebody you think is an evil wrongdoer, but in the aggregate, it's probably leading to some pretty negative cultural effects.
1: I think this really plays out a lot, um, at least in higher education, as I've seen it either through the the student lens or, you know, perhaps um, dissatisfaction with administrative decisions. And we're constantly kind of encountering um, both real time um, complaints or concerns, which are very valid. And then oftentimes kind of misguided interpretation, which can be very, you know, concerning. And and one of the struggles that I'll just kind of throw in here that I have as kind of an administrator in the social media capacity and profession is, you know, offering reassurance when I'm on these platforms and know that it occurs so frequently. Mm-hmm. And it often feels really difficult and, and certainly not reassuring to say, yeah, the burn cycle's fast, you know, take it, chip on your shoulder, somebody else will get trolled the next day, um, which is concerning. I think for us as a society um, that we sort of are normalizing this type of behavior, but but also really disheartening, you know, that there's so little we can do.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I have a particular viewpoint on this, which is that I think you're right, the normalization is the problem, right? If we, if we don't say anything, if we don't act out, uh, especially as people kind of owning accounts or with broad voices, then what happens is people think that the norm is to be a jerk, right? And to try to engage your justice through this like kind of peevish way that we've adopted. I, I've been an advocate for a long time, both for social media platforms and for people who use them to have stronger moderation policies, right? Like we should make it unacceptable to be a jerk, right? And in being a jerk, you should, you know, I don't have to listen to you being a jerk, no matter what our relationship is. So if I want to ban you from having a voice on, on my platform, because you're not acting in a way that I want the norm of my platform to be, I should feel comfortable banning you. Now that gets into a whole bunch of free speech issues that everybody brings up right like, then you're censoring me and I have a right to free speech and all that stuff. Yes, but we also have a right to assembly right we have a right to peaceful assembly and that's in this very same amendment to the Constitution. Uh, Even aside from the fact that that is supposed to constrain the US government and not organizations or anything like that. uh, The free speech kind of ethos in the United States is strong and I love that. But it doesn't mean that you get to act however you want to, right? Or that you get to act without consequence. And so, my advocacy is around stronger moderation. If a person is acting up on a platform or on my Twitter or something, they're blocked and banned almost immediately, right? Like I just, I am not going to countenance incivility um, in discussions, and that's been an unpopular move for a lot of people uh, in the in my own kind of platforms that I run. But it's you know something that I think is necessary to reestablish what those norms of polite conversation are.
1: So speaking of online trolling, which we've we've dabbled in ourselves, or at least maybe I just always think about popping up that little like spam account right on the side, on,
0: on opposite sides, right? You're that's afraid. That's you're that's right. It
1: sorry, exactly. Trolling. Boy, <laughs> I wish I could tweet. No, I'm going to refrain. So in addition to the colorful array of terms that I get to continuously witness the university or the administration or faculty or students um, being called online each day, we also spent the better part of the pandemic being endlessly targeted by sugar daddies and sugar mamas. Um, And I'm really interested to get your perspective on this because There's been this influx of spam accounts and solicitations over the course of the pandemic that are really plaguing platforms. Um, And so a couple of things, you know, was it associated with an election year? Do you think it had to do with, you know, isolation and pandemic? Or, you know, is there any resources for social media novices that you give about accidentally falling for online schemes and, and how to avoid that?
0: Yeah, it's a bunch of great questions there. Definitely the pandemic changed a lot in social media, right? And I think you hit the nail on the head. A lot of it was about loneliness and a sense of isolation. And this plays out in a whole bunch of ways. I think the rash of misinformation that we saw uh, during the past year was also related to that. People spent more time on social media, and in doing so, they were kind of seeking content that felt good to them. and so you see that both in kind of like the spam trolling accounts of like you know kind of adult services being offered uh including the sugar daddy sugar mama stuff you see it in misinformation you see it in online fighting um people had a response to the pandemic which was a feeling of loneliness and seeking any human connection anybody with a toddler knows that negative feedback is just as good as uh positive feedback in when there's when the alternative is no feedback right like you you know you you will act out if the consequence is human connection and sure it's not as good as being loved but being hated is still something right and so you know it's that fed, I think, a whole bunch of people this past year. And it's been amazing to see, you know, some of the rise of platforms that I think fed into that. So TikTok, I think, really became a very popular platform in the past year, partially because people had time to um, make content more for that site, but also because they were just looking for that connection that they had from other TikTokers. Uh, OnlyFans, another adult site, really became huge in this past year uh, because people were looking for alternative revenue and they were also looking for that connection. So it's been really amazing to see how the pandemic has affected social media participation.
1: I want to actually ask you a follow-up on how it's impacted the industry and and professionals within it as well because I know that one of the things that I really encountered over the course of the pandemic was the burnout uh, amongst my peers and colleagues who work in social Mm -hmm. media. Um, And a lot of it was associated with the fact that so many people had moved online, right? We saw an enormous uptick in the people that were coming to us with needs and concerns on a daily basis, or even were just seeking to have a voice as part of a conversation, because they were likely in the confines of, of their home due to, you know, quarantine or restrictions that were taking place. How have you either heard from platforms, because I know that you work with some of them specifically, or even people researching or working in social media, have they been impacted over the course of the last year?
0: Yeah, it's a lot in the industry for sure. Like, so for the social media companies, they've been pretty good about, I think, creating more time for people to deescalate. So my former, I have a lot of former students who work for the Twitters and the Facebooks and the Instagrams and stuff like that. And they they've been good about like allowing people to work from wherever they want to. So a lot of my former students have like, you know, retreated to a Lake Tahoe retreat or, you know, gone to live in the Caribbean or something like that because they can. And uh, the companies also are giving them time off to deescalate. I actually think it's tougher for folks like you who are kind of social media managers for a big organization because you don't necessarily get that luxury of just like checking out for a couple of weeks if it gets to be too much. Right. And so everything is an emergency. Right? Everything is is essential. And especially like if you're on a site like Twitter and there's a big kerfuffle happening, it all feels very urgent. Uh, and you can go from crisis to crisis without a break and that's just gonna wear anybody down. I think the whole world got caught unawares with the increased demands and needs for you all. So I think the effects of this, and especially as we kind of, slowly start to move out of pandemic mode what the consequence will be for these industries is going to really next six months should be fascinating to see how everything shapes and changes
1: yeah we we certainly have um i can attest to to the fact that the last 15 uh months have been one sort of like fire to the next which leads to another interesting aspect of my job which i want to talk more about you and less about me but the public engagement aspect and how we talk to faculty and and your peers and colleagues about leveraging social media at a time period where we know very well that it's an extremely volatile kind of environment. There's a lot of apprehension about even leveraging social media to engage online at all. Um, So what do you say to them about the the value that's still there? How do you personally maybe approach it and what tips and, and resources do you offer?
0: So what I usually tell my colleagues is that people will mirror your behavior, right? And so if you model good behavior, you have a much better chance of people following that good behavior and having a positive online experience. So um, like for instance, when I'm at an academic conference or with a big group of distributed peers, I tend to be fairly positive about everything, right? Like, you know, one of the uses of Twitter is to complain about the coffee or to complain about a decision somebody made. And I can see why people do that, but man, that just gets to be a drag. So I go out of my way to be super positive, to thank people, to show appreciation, to show gratitude, And if you kind of um, do that kind of keep things positive, then you're going to get positivity in return right and that doesn't totally indemnify you from a random troll coming along and trying to like wreck your day kind of thing but. In those cases, you, you block and move on, and you know uh, the only thing you can control is yourself. And so, like you know, try to control your own activities. That's what I tell my students too, right? Like part of what's changed in my teaching over the past couple of years is I spent a lot of time on social media literacy with my undergraduates. I taught a great course last fall called Discerning Truth where we taught undergraduates about how do you look online and identify misinformation and what's that perspective look like from journalists and scientists and politicians and everything like that. Um, and the the core of that is you have to be responsible for what you put out there uh, and, and what you share and doing your homework and making sure that you're sharing the thing that you think represents you well.
1: Yeah, it's, there's two things of note there that I think is really interesting because I've found myself going back to some of the simplistic kind of ideologies that you would advocate for too, right? Like treat others how you want to be treated. It totally um, works in social media and just in, in normal life, right? Like Absolutely. listen more than you speak perhaps and and then walk away and, and make an educated informed decision. Um You mentioned your class on discerning truth, and that leads me, or at least reminds me of the IFFY Quotient, which I know is part of the Center for Social Media Responsibility, which we've had past collaborations on with the Social Integrity um, Project and website. Want to offer an update on what's going on over there at the the center currently? I'd love to hear.
0: Yeah, we're working on more tools that will help people make some of those informed decisions. Part of how social media Uh, can foster a thriving environment for misinformation is that it's overwhelming right we know from information misinformation studies that the the way that bad information gets out there is that people get overwhelmed by the total amount of information and when there's so much information we stop Carefully critiquing information, we depend on heuristics instead Um, because it's much easier, it's faster. I mean, thinking takes cognitive energy, it takes time, it takes effort. And so it's much easier to fall back on a heuristic, a bias, a previously held belief, and just say, Well, there's so much out there. Everybody's saying this and that. I don't, I don't, it's hard to tell me for me to tell what the truth is. So I'm just going to give up and truth becomes meaningless right and that's that's the real scary consequence of some of the, the uh, misinformation out there is that the goal isn't to trick you into believing a false thing the goal is to uh, overwhelm you and to get you to give up on the idea of truth altogether and so that's what we're working on, our tools that will reduce the cognitive burden for folks to figure out what's true what's not true to look at um, that we're working with some students right now on the relational consequences of calling somebody out online for sharing bad information. So like if I shared something you thought was bad information and you called me on that on Twitter or something, what what happens, right? Like how what's the next day look like for us kind of thing. And so stuff like that, we're looking at a whole bunch of um, different alternative frameworks for justice, right? Like it, most moderation frameworks have what we call a retributive justice framework, where it's like a criminal justice model. And we're looking at ways that we can support people more and make them feel less attacked and less alone when they get brigaded or something like that. So it's, you know, we're, I'd say at the heart of it, the Center for Social Media Responsibility is really trying to create tools, both for social media companies, but also for the individual user to help make better, more informed, more supported decisions.
1: You know, that's one of my passion projects. So I love it. Keep them coming. you know, over the course of the last year, we've seen social media mobilize time and time again for a variety of reasons, both good and, and tragically bad. How as a social or how as social media professionals, can we balance our needs for advocacy, for online accountability and action and also improve digital literacy for all age demographics? I think, you know, as, as parents, um, as as teachers and educators, um, we have, I feel like, this special skill set um, that not only can we apply in our jobs, but we should be sharing more widely, because there's age demographics that are emerging that, you know, have some really powerful tools at their, their fingertips. Um, so what's, what's your advice in that space?
0: Yeah, the, the collective action angle of this is really fascinating, right? Like, you know, uh, technology is never neutral, Uh, it always carries with it the agenda, the political agendas of whoever is using it. And so, you know, it is going to foster effective collective action for people who we think of as doing really good things. And for people we think of as doing really bad things, right? And the, the tool is equally effective in organizing kind of a hate rally as it is a peaceful protest. So what... I train my students to do more and more is to be mindful um the big i think force kind of arrayed against us on this is that algorithmic curation in social media platforms uh my eight-year-old's obsessed with youtube like many other eight-year-olds in the world and um you know i have to watch that really carefully and watch what he's watching because the way that the, the algorithm works on youtube is you just keep getting fed videos right and the the videos aren't making decisions on what's good for his health or what's good for his his well-being. They're making decisions about what will keep him on YouTube. Right? It's a business, they're selling ads and the, the, their whole business models with any social media platform is to get you to stay on site and keep consuming ads. And the algorithms have gotten very, very good at that. Uh, so the only way to combat that that I have found is to create mindful browsing habits. right? Um, and mindfulness is a matter of self-awareness. It's a matter of um, kind of creating a habit of checking in, right? Why am I watching this right now? Uh, did I make a decision to watch this? Um, I know people uh, who get lost in TikTok, for instance, and just keep scr- like scrolling the For You page and everything like that. And you know, we, I would wish that the social media platforms, and I'm working with a couple of them on this, create more friction so that they actually interrupt that curated feed more often. Um, but we have to train individuals to do that for themselves too.
1: Yeah, we um in our household used to call that free YouTubing. No free YouTubing. You couldn't just like continue to click through. You were there to watch the video, and then we'd make a a determination that we discussed about whether or not you got to continue through, because it is a rabbit hole, right? It's got a very Alice in Wonderland kind of feel. Once you're in, you suddenly find yourself both losing time and then also trying to identify how you ended up here, um, because you're far from where you started.
0: And when my kid was six at one point, he asked me, do you think the earth is flat? Because it turned out he had fallen down a rabbit hole of like flat earther YouTubers and <laughs> was kind of looking at that. And I'm like, okay, well, that's now, now we're going to do something different. So
1: it, <laughs> it it happens to the best of us. That's yeah. right. So another captivating social media news, we've kind of referenced a few of the, the trends, but you know, really you're exactly right. Over the course of the pandemic, TikTok exploded Twitter and Facebook began to ban politicians, and the emergence of, of Parler as a supposed safe haven for free speech occurred. So, you know, as a well, and actually, speaking of Parler, um, I had the opportunity to speak with your colleague, uh, Professor Libby Hempmill, back in January um, about the role of social media in the insurgents. Which we'll go ahead and link that conversation in the article that we write with this, but. As it relates to this conversation, what surprised you most about the pandemic's influence on social media, and how do you see people and platforms sort of changing as a result?
0: Yeah, I think the platforms are desperate for solutions to some of the problems that they see. Mm -hmm. Like, none of them want to be in the role that they're in, right? Like, they've been pretty vocal about, like, look, we don't want to be arbiters of truth here, (laughs) right? But unfortunately, there's not really any alternative to that. And so they've been trying a variety of things. Um, One that they've been trying, that we've seen has made the most headlines are these policy changes, right? banning politicians, uh, especially who are spreading misinformation or inciting violence, um, holding them accountable to basically the site rules that they've had and have applied to other people for a long time. Um, the other big change that we see that's less visible is changes in um, the features and kind of come up with again those little bits of friction that make it so that people pause before they post something. Um, lots of different platforms are trying different kind of feature elements that will help people to to think a little bit differently about how they post, um, so I think the the pandemic. Has changed. I, I think it was both the election and the pandemic. There was there was kind of a mix there about w- how that affected social media platforms, and I think they finally, I hope, I've been a lot of us have been sounding uh, the the warning bells about this for years. They finally realized their power in kind of shaping what people think and believe and do, right? And so internally, I think that scared a lot of the social media platforms. Like, if we don't do something, we could very well ruin American democracy, right? (laughs) Like, you know, without even meaning to, we can ruin everything. Um, What I think is unfortunate is that conservatives have felt so kind of under the gun as part of that right like um if you look at the numbers they're not actually banned at any greater rate than liberal sites or uh platforms are right so it's it's one of those things where you know uh if you kind of dig apart the actual moderation schemes and look at what facebook and twitter have been doing uh the numbers look pretty even but there's no doubting that conservatives don't feel like they're even right like that's very clear when i've talked to a lot of my conservative friends that they just don't feel like they're getting a fair shake from the social media companies. Um, some of that is the main tool that the platforms use for moderation is machine learning, which are automated software programs that go through and try to find things to block. And for whatever reason, I do think they, that catches conservatives more than it does liberals. Um, so. And we often feel powerless against those machine learning platforms, because as you know, the features for contesting that or for any agency that we have, we all of us feel powerless and are powerless in the face of a Facebook or a Twitter or an Instagram when they block us. Um, and so I think that sense of powerlessness is felt most acutely by conservatives right now, but it affects all of us. And that's something I'd love to see the, the platforms change over time.
1: Yeah, I, I agree completely. Um... We've mentioned algorithms a couple of times during this and I wanna take the opportunity to, to ask you a little bit more about that. I know that we've seen recently just in the university content creation, obviously one, we have a very robust strategy to try to ensure that we're getting the most relevant um, resources that the institution's putting out, research or you know information in the spaces for all of our different stakeholder communities. But we've leveraged things like you know instagram stories versus instagram in feed and putting different content in those spaces and been called out for saying you know you didn't make this a permanent post in your feed so you don't care about it as much when truly we're looking at it as how many people can we get this to and defeat the algorithm who's only going to serve it up to a subset of our community Um, So, you know, what have you learned based off your research as it relates to how these platforms are influencing curation and how that sort of um, impacts information dissemination?
0: A lot of us saw the movie The Social Dilemma, which was, you know, a little bit sensationalized, but I thought did a nice job of explaining kind of under the hood all of the data that they collect on you. My students, for instance, are convinced, 100% convinced that uh, Facebook, for instance, will turn on your phone camera or microphone to listen (laughs) uh, to serve up ads, right? Um, They don't need to do that because they can guess, they can target what you're going to want based off a whole set of factors, up, up to and including the fact that like, if we're at a face-to-face meeting together, my phone is next to your phone mm-hmm. and Facebook knows that, right? Because of the, the Bluetooth constantly connecting and, and they know like, and th- therefore they'll say like, well, these two are together, they might like the same things. Like they're able to take all of those numbers at a scale that it's hard for a human to even imagine and crunch those and come up with really powerful, automated tools to make recommendations to us. What that does then is, you know, their goal is to serve us better ads, things we'll actually click on. Um, But what it also does is it serves us content, both in terms of the videos that we see, in terms of um, you know the posts that we see on Facebook, all of that is so heavily curated and opaque. It's it's impossible for people to see through what the curation decision is on all these platforms. And quite consequently, like if you're not very critical of it, you just think that's what's on Facebook, right? Or you think that's what's on Twitter, and you don't know how heavily curated it's been to keep you on the site. So it's it's uh, something again that. The companies have so much power and the individual user doesn't and part of that power is that algorithm
1: yeah i think one of the most fascinating uh case studies on algorithms that i've seen in, in my time in the industry actually was surrounding the emergence of some of the um applications intended for young women to track menstrual cycle and how that data was being sold to social platforms in order to target them based on times of the month that they knew that they were vulnerable to making purchasing decisions. Yeah. Which is just mind blowing because so few people are likely cognizant of the ramifications of, you know, just trying to download a health app or something that will be helpful in the other aspects of their lives.
0: I mean, my favorite example is that the Bible app, if you download that from the app store, has like over a hundred different data points that it collects on you and reports back out right like including location information and stuff like that right so you're right seemingly harmless applications that you're downloading to your phone and then these social games that have become so popular are all feeding that giant machine right like it's it's incredibly it's an incredibly powerful and effective tool for creating profiles of humans
1: absolutely well we have time for just one more question and in light of everything we've discussed today but particularly the increasing prevalence of racial discrimination threats of violence against minority communities and microaggressions towards marginalized groups that we've encountered over the course of the last year and the last couple of months, um, both in our institutional communities and our personal online ones. I'd like to ask you for your recommendations or resources as it relates to reporting these types of behaviors, though, admittedly, we're both frustrated always with, with how much action gets taken but also the mental health um, capacity of our communities and how to care for people and help create more positive, productive online spaces
0: yeah so i've recently i've taken a lot of this from the literature on conflict resolution and especially on um, uh, bystander support in cases of harassment offline right so that that group has been researching this for a long time and it feels like their techniques are just as relevant in a kind of technology mediated space as they are offline and everything they say is is don't confront harassers right instead offer support to the person who's being harassed Um, and so that's what i've been working on in my kind of personal use and also training my students in is you know if you see a microaggression offer your support to the person who was being aggressed against right like you know we we i think have like i said earlier have devolved to a kind of a call-out culture because it feels so helpless otherwise but we're not helpless the other thing we can do is offer support um like it also like my friends who are uh, are sometimes cantankerous about this, will say, well, if you're, you know, people spend too much time virtue signaling in these uh, social media sites, right? They'll put out these, especially on Twitter, like, you know, uh, robust sounding proclamations of their allyship and it's just virtue signaling. And I think there might be a little bit of truth to that uh, when especially folks like me should just be highlighting voices of other people or offering support to them in different ways. And that's just another aspect of that positivity we were talking about earlier, right? Like if you're in a room, Uh, with people, and the only thing you were doing was talking over everybody, that wouldn't feel very positive and supportive of the people in that room, right? So why would you do that in a social media space? Instead, you want to make space for other people, you want to help amplify their voices, you want to say great job, I love what you're doing. Like, that's in normal conversation, we know that's how you actually be a good, supportive, positive person, right? And somehow, because it's so hard to see people's reactions. And there's kind of this like fog of technology in social media. We just don't do that as much in social media and there's a lot of opportunity to do it.
1: I I completely agree. I, I love that. And I always say that one of the best parts of my job here at the institution is having the ability to share the microphone. We have very large platforms and it doesn't take a genius to know that sometimes people don't care what the brand has to say, um, but it's the people within that we can truly learn from And so, you know, that's not an approach that I think everybody is comfortable or has the capacity to be able to execute. And so it's something that I feel very fortunate for here. It's one of the reasons I took this job, right? There are brilliant people across this institution like yourself that I have the opportunity to to speak with, and then we can create resources like this one to share um, to help other people learn more about what it is that that we're doing or or things that they can do. So with that, um, we've reached the end of our time. So do you have any final thoughts or parting wisdom?
0: I mean, the only other thing I would add to that is I, I do a lot of work like this with nonprofits and like especially nonprofit groups at the university. And the thing they always get wrong is that they wanna share information on social media and they think that it's just an information space. And really it's an emotion space, right? Like if you look at even the react buttons that we get across social media, they're, they're hearts and laughs and cries and stuff like that, right? And so I think for anybody thinking about how do you like work in social media, stop worrying so much about kind of like just the information and start thinking about the emotional connection that you're creating with people.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Professor Lampy, for joining us on the Michigan Minds podcast. Uh, Please keep up the great work and let's be sure to not let us go 15 months without catching up again.
0: I'm looking forward to a face-to-face meeting sometime.
1: Fantastic.
0: Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.